Hey, y'all. Welcome to The Road You Leave Behind, our podcast here on Outsider.com. This is Volume 2. I'm your host, Marty Smith, and my guest this week is a country music icon. Kix Brooks, half of the Hall of Fame duo Brooks and Dunn, of course, alongside Ronnie Dunn. And I had always wondered about their union. What brought them together? What got them to Nashville in the first place? What were their aspirations? What were their dreams? And how did what ultimately happened compare to those dreams? Because they have most certainly had the most unbelievable of careers, 20 number one singles and 50 songs to radio. That's unbelievable. Of course, as I said, they are now country music hall of famers. I always wondered what in the hell would make that kind of success break up. I had never heard Kicks or Ronnie openly discuss the point, point blank question, why did you break up? Well, I asked Kicks. I can't wait to hear what you guys think about his answer. Now, before we get to Kicks, I should also say I had some internet issues at the house that resulted in a four alarm fire. I had to haul ass out of my house over here to a coffee shop near my neighborhood and sit outside with no mask. That's why I'm sitting outside. You'll probably see the camera shaking because I was freezing my tail off, but Kicks actually thought that was hilarious. And just so you know, when I left my garage in my Ram pickup truck, I laid some rubber. I texted Kicks a picture and he said, your buddy Dale Earnhardt would be proud. I love that. So without further ado, here is the road you leave behind with Kicks Brooks. There he is. What's hey, up dude. there, man? What's happening? Man, it is great to see you this morning. I appreciate your time so much. I am very sorry. Shop. I'm at the coffee shop because my internet is just a joke right now, I guess. All right, man. Well, first, I just want to say uh, thank you so much for your time and I know people probably tell you this all the time, but I'm such a massive fan of what you and Ronnie have done for all these years, and you're part of the soundtrack of my youth. Oh, and well, we'll get you therapy. You'll be okay. I need it, brother. You guys <laughs> are my therapy. That's the funny thing about it. But huh. uh, we'll just we'll just run through this and and get started with kind of your path. And you know, so so Leon Eric Brooks the third. Yeah. Where did kicks come from? Actually, my mom put that on me like a couple of weeks before I was born. I was trying to bust out of there. I don't know about <laughs> you, but nine months with my head between my legs is long enough. So uh, I've always been kicks. It's funny. Uh, somebody I was talking to somebody, uh, an insurance agent the other day, and they were saying, well, you know, it was my farm insurance and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, um, they said I was going to be talking to kicks today and said, you know, Leon and Barbara, we, we, uh, you know, we have this issue with so-and-so, so-and-so and all this equipment and all these tractors. I go, well, I am Leon. So it's, <laughs> it gets me in a lot of trouble and it gets me out of a lot of trouble too. It's like, that's not me. I was going to ask you if anybody still called you that, but I guess the insurance lady does, huh? I've got a couple of close friends back, back home where I grew up, you know, and they still do. That's, just goes with uh, guys hitting each other in the arm, you know. <laughs> when did music enter your aura, kind of enter your life? Just always was. You know, we just had a, a real musical family and, and you know, 
know, grew up going to the lake and this and that. My mom died when I was like four years old and I spent a lot of time with my cousins and grandparents. And when we got in the car, we weren't talking, we were singing, you know, just all, all and everything, church songs and camp songs and Hank Williams and you name it, you know, but we were just always singing and, uh, and playing and putting on the shows as long as I can remember, honestly, I probably, honestly started playing when I was about six years old my my grandmother got me a ukulele and I I got a had a Johnny Cash songbook 100 songs by Johnny Cash I think I learned every one of them on the ukulele <laughs> but you know when I got maybe 10 or 11 old enough to kind of hold a guitar I, I already knew what chords and songs were um, I just had to get a chord book and learn what a CG and D look like on a guitar losing mom that early impacted. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was just um, really blessed to have a great father and we stayed uh, really close uh, till he passed away from a few years back, but um, uh, just had a lot of great women in my life, my aunts and my grandmother and uh, my father's mother came to live with us. It was funny because Andy Griffith was always our favorite TV show. And I don't know why the producers came up with that concept, but uh, our household wasn't leave it to Beaver. You know, my grandmother was big, looked just like Aunt B. My father, if you'd have met him, uh, picture perfect uh, image of Andy Griffith. Talk like him, even kind of look like him. Had that same kind of homespun uh, way about him and, and uh, seemed to always have a good moral at the end of the day. He was always my, my grounded, uh, you know, mentor when, when I could figure out a way of weaseling out of something, or maybe, uh, maybe cutting a deal that was a little uh, too much in my favor, he would always uh, bring me back to the center and, you know, uh, uh, remind me what was right and what was wrong till I finally got it on my own. <laughs> Seemed like a really, really good blue collar, get your hands dirty, work hard influence too. What, how did his work on the pipeline and your work on the pipeline impact your worldview? Well, my father was an engineer. So his work on the pipeline uh, was my work on the pipeline. Because when I was probably 14 or 15, I started working in the shop, uh, loading up trucks, going out on pipelines and whatever. When I was old enough to be out on the job, he always found the nastiest, hardest ditch full of mud or whatever where I could be with a shovel or I won't bore you with my whole pipeline career but there was nothing, <laughs> there was nothing about sitting in an office about it you know um, by the time I got to college and and he offered me a job on the Alaska pipeline which he was a part of that team that designed it um, you know I was sitting in an office because I, I was one of the few people that had any clue about how to test a pipe that was that big and uh, there was a pretty small crew of us that did that. But my dad, came, his father, you know, uh, actually sharpened blades in a sawmill in Urania, Louisiana. And his mother was a first grade school teacher. Um, he, he went in the service and put himself through college and obviously was a really smart guy, but uh, there was not a pretentious bone in his body. He never pushed society or to be in the in crowd and, you know, and. In, in that whole club or anything. He was always home. I can still hear him whistling through the door at 5.30 every day. And he whistled out the door at seven o'clock in the morning. He worked till the day he died and he loved his work just like I do. 
you noted the Johnny Cash uh, hundred songs of Johnny Cash book that, that you learned by heart. So obviously the man in black was a musical influence. Who were some of your other musical influences coming up? Well, growing up in Shreveport, um, Hank Williams and Johnny Horton's widow live live like two blocks from us. And my first gig uh, with my band, the originals in the sixth grade was at her house. Her daughter, Johnny Horton's daughter, Nina Horton, and I went to grade school together and uh, she paid us five bucks. I always said five bucks on the playground because it was a dollar a piece. There was five of us, but still big <laughs> money, you know? And um, yeah, so that was my first uh, introduction. We went in that house and man, there was Hank Williams guitars and gold records on the wall and you know, picture of Johnny Horton in a Revolutionary War uh, outfit that was painted hanging over their fireplace. And it was just, they lived in a little white house just like us. You know, it was uh, it was uh, a pretty humble neighborhood, really. You know, we weren't in poverty, but we weren't in society by any means. What lured you to Nashville? My father. You know, again, when I got out of school, I had this bright idea. Of, there was a real popular bar in Shreveport that was coming up for sale, and um, five thousand dollars and. They could have made it. It was just during the week, like all bars, you, you're slow. And on the weekends, it was rocking. And my band played there a lot. And um, I, I was just went and had a meeting with my dad. And, you know, it was the only official uh, talk, you know, I can really remember us having. And sat down because I wanted a loan. Wanted to know if he would co-sign for me. And he listened to my whole thing, sitting there smoking his cigar. And I finally got done with my speech about you know, how I could be the house band during the week. We wouldn't have to worry about paying bands. I had this whole plan together and he listened to the whole thing. And he said, you know, two things. One, you don't know a damn thing about the bar business other than <laughs> drinking and banging on a guitar. And number two, you're pretty good at banging on a guitar, but uh, in Shreveport, Louisiana, you're kind of a big fish in a small pond right now. And uh, if you want to prove something to yourself, you need to go to Los Angeles or New York, or I would suggest Nashville for the kind of music you play. And of course, at that time, you know, in college, you play everything. Um, college kids don't care. We, we played everything from Hank Williams to Frank Zappa, you know, and a lot of Almond Brothers and all that kind of stuff. And, and I was really heavily influenced uh, by the whole Austin thing that was coming up. And uh, there was a big bar in town called the River City Music Hall. And that's where I met Guy Clark and Jerry Jeff Walker and, and uh, Ray Benson, Asleep at the Wheel, all those guys. Because I could open up just by myself with a guitar. I could make a lot of noise. So I got all those gigs. And Jerry Jeff and I got to be buds. And um, it's funny. I actually wrote a song for him on one of our Bricks and Dunn records he, uh, he sang on. But, you know, that's, uh, that's a real... Uh, a real reckless, uh, inebriated uh, introduction to the music business. <laughs> there, was, there was nothing sober about the way we were running back then. And, uh, and I loved every minute of it. It was great. I just, at that time, you know, that was just, I just wanted to be like them. And I took my dad's advice though. I went to Nashville and that's where I realized it wasn't, you know, it wasn't uncool to be in Nashville. And a lot of my heroes like Roger Miller and Mickey Newberry, um, Chris Christopherson, um, 
Sonny Throckmorton, I got to be friends with and was uh, eventually within a year or two embraced by a great producer, Don Gant, um, a great publisher who worked with all those guys. And I had just started his own publishing company and he kind of he kind of took me under his wing and things started happening. I wrote songs for a living for 10 years. Yeah, I was going to ask you how your Nashville experience unfolded. How, how did you go about getting that publishing deal? Well, the, the longer part of the story is I was playing at Bluebird Cafe. A lot of a lot of success stories in Nashville started. No that question. That um, uh, Bob Dole was in the audience. He was working for ASCAP at the time and later became Garth Brooks's manager, still is. And um, and when I got done with my set, he came up to me, introduced himself, asked me if I had any more songs like that. And I said, man, I got lots of bad songs, you know, if you want to listen <laughs> to them. And he invited me to my office, to his office the next day. And I played him four or five more songs. And he called Don Gant and said, I've never called you with anybody because I don't know if he's got a hit, but there's something going on here. And uh, I went and played for Don and he told me the exact same thing. He goes, I'm not going to give you any money. But if you want to hang your hat here, um, you know, Throckmorton and Bruce Chanel and uh, Newberry and on and on. You know, Don had been at Tree and had blown up the careers of all those people. He cut um, That's the Way Love Goes on Haggard. Um, mm -hmm. And just, you know, a lot of stuff. Produced Buffett's first five records, uh, Come Monday, sang the backgrounds on all that stuff. So all of a sudden I'm in the studio and uh, with a guy who really knows what he's doing and and with a bunch of writers that were more than willing to write with me for whatever reason. And um, just wasn't too long. I, you know, maybe six, eight months, I got my first cut on the Oak Ridge Boys record. Wasn't a single, but that was after Elvira was a million selling album, Bobby Sue. And, you know, a, a million times seven cents, all of a sudden I can pay my rent without sweeping the floors. Yeah. You got a little <laughs> bit of scratch in your pocket. Yeah. Yeah. At that time when you were just, before you got a record deal, were you writing for, when you sat down to write with friends or even by yourself, were you writing specifically with artists in mind or just the best thing you could write? Both. Both. The thing about Gantt, he would hold court every day about five o'clock. He'd send out and get a couple of cases of beer. And everybody, whether they wrote for him or not, everybody knew him and everybody respected him. And there was always a party uh, you know, at the end of the day. And, and he had a way, there's just, I don't know, I, this, this probably happens somewhere occasionally, probably obviously not in COVID times, but he had a way of, and everybody would get to play their song they'd written that day. And he would start with young writers, guys that he knew probably didn't have a hit in their pocket, but maybe so i would be you know early on the docket and he goes what are y'all working on today kicks and i would play him something and i could tell he's not going that's a freaking smash but he's like you played what was that line you said about so and so so and so he would find in your pan of gravel he would find the one shiny piece and he would harp on it and he would make sure everybody knew man that's that's freaking great you know god play that part again you know, and so you knew this is what I'm after. You know, he would he would highlight the the good that you were doing and would, you know, then you would try and expound on it. And then he would keep going till he'd get around to Ray Fan Hoy or somebody who'd written something to just make your eyes roll back in your head and you go, son of a 
I got to work harder. You know, I got it. And the next day you just, you'd know that same thing was going to go down tomorrow and you were going to have to show up with something great. You just, it, it took a lot of compromise out of the way you thought and the way you worked every day. When did Ronnie Dunn enter your life and how? Well, that was, uh, that was really just a weird, the whole thing was weird um, and kind of always has been. And uh, it's, it's funny, we've, uh, we've kicked our can down the road since, since the day we met, which was an introduction by Tim Dubois, who had started Arista Records. He'd already signed the boy singer. He had, um, he had Alan Jackson uh, on the label. So, bad. Yeah, and, and Alan had, you know, here in the real world, and he was off and running. He had uh, a band, he signed Diamond Rio, and they had Meet in the Middle, and they were, they were fired up. Pam Tillis was his female, so he wanted to do them. And, um, and I had sent him a song called Lost and Found, and uh, uh, thinking about Alan or something, you know, just kind of pitching it around. It had been getting some good response, you know. When you got a song that's, it's either a stone cold smash and you send it to somebody and it's done right away. Or there's songs like modern day romance I wrote, which everybody passes on, but everybody likes it. You know, it's one of those things you're like, this is going to get cut eventually. And, um, and I didn't get it cut, but I got this call from Tim going, I got somebody I want you to meet mister. And um, he, uh, we met at a Mexican restaurant and actually first time I'd ever seen Ronnie Dunn, but he played me these two songs Ronnie had written, Neon Moon and Boot Scootin' Boogie. And yeah. Not bad. Yeah, you know, and those are both, those songs are both maybe not so obvious as they seem today. You know, when, when you're living in the songwriting world, it's easy to go, Boot Scootin' Boogie was well put together. And Tim had, already cut that song on Asleep at the Wheel. He did a real swing version of it. Out in the country, past the city limits, sun and this. And um, and Neon Moon's just, you know, it's a cool song, but it was, you know, it was, it was a long song and things like, you know, you start going, but obviously Ronnie Dunn can sing, you know, and I'm like, well, that's cool. You know, I'd love to meet the guy. And we sat down and then Tim kind of laid out what he wanted to do. He wanted to have a duo and the Judds are breaking up and there's going to be a hole in the marketplace and all the thing that record company guys say. But Ronnie and I are looking across the table at each other, shrugging our shoulders going, this doesn't make any sense, you know. And Ronnie's 38 years old. I'm 36 years old. That's not usually when you start a career. I'd already had a record deal on Capitol. There were two Brookses on Capitol, me and Garth. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I had a couple of songs, even uh, Sacred Ground, you know, which was later a hit for McBride and the Rod. But Capitol obviously wasn't into what I was doing. And so I begged off and they let me off. And, um, you know, Tim eventually said, look, guys, okay, you don't have to, I'm not necessarily offering you a record deal, but you're both good songwriters. Just do me a favor, see if you can write something together. And um, that was Tuesday. Thursday, we wrote Brand New Man. Friday, we wrote Next Broken Heart. We went into Tree and demoed them pretty much how the record is. And I took them back to Tim and he just started jumping up and down and he goes, guys, y'all gotta do this. You gotta try because Brand New Man's a freaking hit, I promise you. And then we'll see what the rest of it does. But, you know, you, you got to try. 
So we said, what the hell? You know, <laughs> I'm, you know, Ronnie'd had record deals on MCA. He'd been around, you know, we both had been around 10, 15 years. He'd been beating himself up in honky tonks. We're not, we're not two kids who haven't seen the music business up close and personal. And, uh, and that's why we're both going, this, this doesn't stand much of a chance. And um, except for we were pretty excited about the music. We couldn't deny we'd written a couple of songs we both really liked. And I liked Blue Scoot and Neon Moon and he liked Lost and Found. Tim had done the same thing for him. So hell, we got better than half an album put together and we hadn't done anything. <laughs> so, you know, we just started to do the showcase, this and that, the things you do. And, and Tim was right about Brand New Man. It blew up and now we're, uh, you know, we're driving a rocket ship instead of a pickup truck. Yeah, man, absolute rocket ship. And, and those songs you named me, four number ones off the first record, including your first single, Brand New Man. But, but before we get to that, what was it like to learn each other in the middle of the rocket ship? Because you don't know, you don't know one another as, as, as brothers or human beings. And I can't imagine what that must be like to stand in front of the world without really knowing that guy. Yeah, it it was sorry. No, it's all right, man. My computer also uh, apparently takes phone calls. <laughs> um, it was it was uncomfortable. It was um, you know, Ronnie's he's a real uh, much more so than me. Um, not hothead, just real strong willed and whatever. And, um, we were both, and I, you know, it's, it's been, uh, <laughs> it's been spoken about in, in many different, you know, critical ways, our performing styles. I, I just came from a wild ass Louisiana background, uh, performing whatever clubs I played in guys that I from Doug Kershaw to George Thurgood guys that, you know, jumped off the stage and kicked onto your table and kicked your beer all over you and kept rocking. And I love that stuff. You know, that's, that was, and I played New Orleans for a long time, just, you know, gigs that were survival. And, and Ronnie, you know, he was primarily playing in dance halls in Oklahoma and um, playing cover songs and throwing in a few songs that he'd written, but, you know, playing songs that people could two-step to where I was playing more in, um, you know, performance clubs kind of things. I don't know, even, even small ones, but they were more shows than, than dance halls, if that makes any sense. So our backgrounds were very different. We liked the same kind of music. Um, we both were, you know, big fans of Allman Brothers and, and Leon Russell, Rolling Stones, as well as, you know, it's so cliche to say Haggard and Jones, but um, that was for us, especially Merle Haggard for both of us. Um, you know, just, we liked his singing. We liked his stature. We liked his attitude and Johnny Cash goes without saying. So, and those guys were, you know, Haggard and Jones weren't, but Cash and Hank Williams were pop stars. I mean, that was like Roger Miller. I mean, they were country, but, um, you know, Cash was connected to Dylan and that kind of stuff too. And again, from my, from my college background and whatever, uh, just those great singer songwriter things were probably much more of my, uh, my 
heart and soul than classic country hit dance songs and stuff, you know. When you when you have somebody that's a strong personality like Ronnie and and guys like both of you who are quite competitive people and extremely talented people, what's the challenge of keeping a team first perspective over all those years? Well, you know, hits have a have a way of solving all the problems. And True. anytime, I will say this in all honesty, Ronnie and I have never raised our voices to each other, you know, much less gotten a fight. Um, we've, we're grown men who appreciate how freaking lucky we are. I mean, the chances of this thing working the way it did, it's just one in a jillion. I mean, yep, yep. Again, we've both seen so many one hit wonders even that's what we both looked at each other and go wow i mean as as we get a little further down the road we both kept realizing that the power was in the duo and there's no explaining it i mean it's easy to say ronnie's obviously the voice of the duo but there's there's a combination there that um, drew people to it. Um, maybe it was the fact that there was there was always a there was always an understanding between us on stage, always a certain amount of tension, you know. Uh, there's and a certain amount of joy that the fact that we couldn't help but shake our heads at each other on stage, looking at those crowds, going. I don't know, man, <laughs> they just keep coming and they're having as much fun or more than we are and they and they're supporting us. You know, it's sometimes you you look at those at those fans in that crowd. And for me, I would realize these people have more faith in us than we have in ourselves. And there's so many of them. I mean, how, how foolish would we be not to listen? The fans are always right. I mean, I've always said that they, you can, you, you listen to record company executives and they're so smart and whatever and publishers, everybody knows everything. They'll tell you why it doesn't work. They'll tell you why this is a hit, da, da, da. But eventually the fans, make, they, they're the ones who, who make somebody a star or not. And you can scratch your head and go, Luke Combs isn't pretty. You know, <laughs> but, but the fans, they tell you, this is what we want. And, and for Ronnie and I, you know, for all our, for all our whatevers that, that don't make any sense, um, they kept telling us, we want you to do this. So we kept digging in the well, trying to find a hit, find, trying to find something good and trying to put a show together that made them feel like they were getting every nickel they'd spent when they walked through the door. Whether or not somebody's pretty, it kind of makes me laugh that that's even part of the equation, but I understand why it is. But, <laughs> but he's undeniable. Luke's undeniable. Yeah. And you guys have been undeniable for decades. When did you realize, at what point did you realize, holy shit, man, this is real. We're real. Never. And I think Ronnie will tell you the same thing. I so how's that possible when you have 20 number ones and 
50 singles and and all i mean i, I don't understand that well you just you just can't believe it you know you you feel like you're um i mean it's you almost feel guilty uh you shouldn't after working that hard for that many years i i hear what you're saying but um you know there's uh it's i don't know it's hard to it's hard to describe um again i think i think ronnie dunn is uh is still you know one of the best singers out there um but i think we did we did write some songs for the time um both of us uh, i think had had some ability and probably had a sense of just what was going on and whatever, wherever we come from that whole, we both came up hard in the bars, you know, there wasn't any American Idol or anything going on back then. Uh, we just, we brought a lot of, a lot of uh, grit and barroom experience, I think, to the table. And we, uh, we put that in the songs and that's just kind of where the, where folks were during the nineties, you know, it was, it was a, fun loving good time hard rocking uh anything goes uh period in country music and i think we turned a lot of corners uh musically i don't know if they were right or wrong but um you know it it's why i don't throw stones at, at country music today because i i keep telling people that ronnie and i were you know we grew up with with all that stuff from Tulsa, all that stuff from from Austin, uh, as well as you know, and Haggard was California. He he wouldn't tell you he's a Nashville guy, but um, our influences had a lot. We had a lot of rock influences, just like today. You know, those kids in their frat houses or whatever that you know that they're writing. A lot of my Georgia buddies and whatever, even you know Luke Bryan and all that. I mean. And they're on their tailgates and whatever, they're cranking up T-Pain and all this, you know, a lot of hip hop music and all that. And they can't help but put those rhythms and stuff in their country music they're writing, you know? And it's just, we continue to be influenced the next generation. And you could have said the same thing about when they, I mean, you know, the hoopla, when they put drums on the Grand Ole Opry, I mean, it was, Hell, it was funny. I was not to name drop, but was laughing with Buck Owens about that in, in Bakersfield. He jumped up on the bus one night, and we were talking about. I think, I think Straight had just done Murder on Music Row or something, and and Buck was laughing. He goes, "I'll tell you right now, boys, should they boot me off the stage of the Grand Ole Opry for playing a Telecaster, and now everybody's saying they need to put Telecaster back in country music. So it's just it's just evolution." You know, it is, and um, it's just uh, kind of where we came from and kept on rocking it. You noted a minute ago that Ronnie's one of the greatest singers in the history of the format, and I certainly agree with that. But there are a couple of absolute monsters that you guys, that you wrote, that, that you sang on, that you were the lead on. You're Gonna Miss Me is my favorite Brooks and Dunn song, and Lost and Found is second. Oh, and cool. you, you were the lead on both of those. And so, so how did you guys decide who would take the lead? What was that process like? 
Well, you know, early on, I think we just started having hits with Ronnie and, you know, I think um, Lost and Found was like a number two after we'd had, you know, four big records. Uh, same thing with Rock My World. And um, it, it was just kind of, you know, at the probably at the end of a record or something like that, Ronnie had obviously become the, you know, the the lead singer of the of the duo, but um, I still had, um, I still liked to sing and still was having songs that people liked. And I felt like I really didn't just want to be a side guy. Um, there's better guitar players than me. You know, if, if Ronnie wanted a solo career, then, you know, then I was certainly uh, more than once encouraged him to, to do that if, if that's really what he wanted to do. And, um, but, uh, you know, we continued to work together and, and he liked songs that I was doing. And, you know, uh, um, so, you know, on a song like You're Gonna Miss Me, which was, was a song we, we got started on the bus and, you know, we were gonna, it, it didn't have a chorus, you know, but we, we wrote these verses. I had that hook in my pocket and, and we really dug the verses and jumped off the bus and said, we'll get back on that. And, you know, we never did. We, we uh, had that little bridge in the middle. We were gonna, you know, maybe write some lyrics for that. And when we got to the end of a session and we had a little time, so well, let's put that, let's put You're Gonna Miss Me Down. We could always edit some choruses in or something, but I really like the way that feels. And we cut it and, you know, we just, we kept saying we were gonna come back and work on it and we never did. <laughs> and it was time to make the record. And the, one of the record guys said, man, I like that. You're gonna miss me thing. And so well, let's just put it, stick it on there then. And, and then radio starts coming back saying that people had bought the album and um, they were really liking that song. and. Finally, we just said, well, hell, put it out, see what happens. And a uh, couple of weeks at number one, we realized we've been working too hard. <laughs> Forget about choruses. <laughs> I mean, it's a beautiful song and it means so much to me. It's, um, it's one that's helped buoy me emotionally in a, lot of, in a lot of moments. And I can't imagine, is there, is there any one person or a couple of stories you may have where that song impacted people? Well, it's interesting because, and like night before last, I was actually talking to my wife about this. It was, it was maybe uh, the blow up on um, Blake. I think recently people giving him a hard time about writing a song about, you know, working class minimum wage or whatever it is, you know, and Ronnie came to his defense and, it's funny because the first single off my solo project after when Ronnie and I took a break, um, I got beat up for, for writing a song about, you know, missing a girl, a girl that had left him because I'm in a happy marriage. And I was just, I was talking to Barbara. I said, you know, it's weird because as a writer, you shouldn't be encumbered that way because you're writing for you, but you're writing for everybody else. And a song like You're Gonna Miss Me it's interesting because it's written from, I'm singing it, so I'm talking it, singing it to some girl, you know, but women love this song. They immediately take this song as their own. It's kind of like when Tritt sang, here's a quarter, call someone who cares. Women immediately own that song, <laughs> you know, 
And and um, so I, I told Barbara, I said, I got to tell you, it's sometimes when I'm down here writing, um, you know, when you're wanting to write a cheating song or you're wanting to write a heartbreak song or something, sometimes you start second guessing yourself because she's one of the first people I'm going to play it for, you know, and <laughs> I said, and, and you're going to miss me is that way. I said, you've heard me sing that song a million times and um, you know, on stage, but I have to, I have to ignore the fact that I'm not singing it to you. I, you know, that's, that's the first place in my brain that I go to. I have to take her out of that equation and, and think about some memory back when I was in high school or college when some girl really dumped on me, you know? <laughs> I think it's, there, there's, a, there's a saying, and I don't know if I'll get it right, but it's basically something along the lines of good writers make you believe things they've experienced. Great writers make you believe things they haven't. You know, that kind of thing. Uh -huh. like, like you're talking about you're writing beautiful songs that may not be specifically applicable to your life, but they're applicable, applicable to millions of other lives and make yeah. them feel and, and not only feel, feel belonging, but feel like, man, there's somebody who an ally, I got an ally, somebody in my corner who understands what I'm going through right now. Um, I get it. One of the, one of the, one that I really hold on to was in New Jersey. We got done at that amphitheater up there and, and my driver came and said, hey, there's a guy here says he just really needs, he just wants one minute just to say hey to you. And I went out and opened the door. He said, man, thank you for coming to the door. He said, I just got to tell you. He said, I'm from New Jersey. He goes, I just got to tell you, Red Dirt Road, that's my song. And I, I thought, Red Dirt Road was one of those prayer meetings Ronnie and I had about where we came from when he was in South Arkansas and I was in North Louisiana with my grandparents and riding those logging roads with my grandfather. And we did that dirt on both places we were was, was something that we had in common. And at that point we said, you know, we gotta make that our album. And later on got around to writing the song. I won't bore you with all that, but, but that guy in New Jersey who couldn't, be, couldn't have been any further from what inspired the writing of that song, it really made me smile. I said, well, that makes me feel real good, man, that I, that, that thought made it all the way to New Jersey and still works. You know? Was it really Route 3? Yeah, that was, uh, that's where Ronnie grew up. Route 3, that's awesome, man. Uh -huh. Out here in Earnhardt country, that hits us. That hits us big. That hits us big. Gotcha, you man. Know it's my Dale, you know. I know I do too so much. He was just uh, the most unique person and I love his son like a brother. You and I've talked about that yeah. before in the past. Um, you noted the breakup and I, I'm one of y'all's biggest fans and I've never heard y'all really talk about it. Really talk about it. What was the reason? What, what made y'all say we want to take some time apart from one another? Was it inspirations outside of the group that you had and aspirations? Why? I think it had been brewing a long time. And I think Ronnie really wanted to try to a solo career. I think he really, no matter, uh, I mean, there's always, there's always some compromise going on musically and putting a record together. And we were trying to put a record together. And, you know, I had 
songs that he didn't like. He had songs that I felt we could do better. Um, he didn't want to hear that, and I didn't either, you know. And um, he just said, I don't want to do this anymore. And I said, great. And I had, I mean, there had been times in the past that, you know, he felt, said, you know, I can do this by myself. And I said, then you should, man, in all sincerity. I mean, I we both uh, were doing good 20 years ago when we met, and now we're doing great, <laughs> you know? And, and um, you know, we've had a heck of a run, and we have nothing but but everything to be thankful for. And I will encourage you the whole way and did, you know? And, and um, that's just, that's just kind of how it went. I mean, we ran hard for 20 years against all odds, not knowing each other. Mm -hmm. We weren't like high school buddies. This was, had always been our dream. Our dreams had always been, we had always had our own bands. We had always done our own thing. We were all of a sudden put in a situation where we had to compromise everything we did and we made it work for 20 years and Merle Haggard asked me the same thing we were sitting on a bus together he he was kind enough to to go out with us our last two weeks on tour and I'm and he said he would go if we but we had to sing with him every night uh, with open force but he got to pick the song and it was never silver wings or whatever. It was always something I'd never heard of. So we'd have to go woodshed right before the show and whatever. And anyways, I jump up on his bus one night and he said, come here, I need, I need to talk to you. I said, okay. And we were in Woodstock, New York. And he points out the window. And we had a you know, sold out crowd. The lawn was packed. And he goes, look at all those damn people. So I know I said, we're gonna have a heck of a night tonight, Merle. He goes, said, what in the F is wrong with you? I said, I don't know, Merle. What in the F's wrong with me? I said, man, look at all those people. So they come out here to see you play. So why would y'all want to break up? I said, well, Merle, you know, you and Willie cut one of my favorite songs, Poncho and Lefty, made a record that I freaking love. And y'all made one record together and you're best buddies. And Ronnie and I made it 20 freaking years together. And you're asking me that question? And he kind of grinned and he took a toke off his toke and he looked back at me and goes, yeah, but we only had one hit. <laughs> All right, Merle, you win today. But we got to take a break, man, because we never have raised our voices at each other. We've never had a fight. We've had a great run. And who knows? You know, we didn't we never said uh, when hell freezes over or any of that crap like the Eagles did. You know, we just we needed to take a deep breath. And we did. And it was funny. We took hell. Six months after after uh, we finished that last tour in 2010, we went to Tahiti together with Reba and and Stroud and Leanne Walmack and on a on a little boat out there we we chartered and just had a great time. We continued to duck hunt, just you know, kind of went to dinner with Reba on a real regular basis till finally she brought up the the Vegas idea. It had been four or five years. We'd both made some music on our own, gotten that out of our system a little bit, and um, and went went and played in Vegas. You would have thought 
we had finished our tour in 2010 the week before i mean it was it's like who cares here we are you know this every one of those songs when they come up on the set list they still feel good to me it's never you know oh god here we go again you know it's just <laughs> like oh yeah let's do yeah here we go you know so anyway it's it was a break that we we just needed you know i mean it's really hard for fans to understand i totally get it when all I mean, even the Stones broke up. I was watching Keith Richards' documentary the other day. I'd forgotten that because they got back together and they're rocking, you know? The Beatles never, never healed up, but, um, but Ronnie and I did. And um, hell, we've, we've been talking back and forth all week. We've got a tour lined up if COVID will let us up in the fall and um, looking forward to it. I think, you know, going into a handful of venues, including Charlotte and Raleigh, you know, it's always been sellouts for us you know I, I think if we can do half houses it's it's worth the travel and uh, and we still like to play together I mean, we still have fun and we're kicking a few song ideas back and forth so certainly not saying uh, we would get on the radio road and do all that because I don't believe in in that for us I don't you know any more than straight or Reba or anybody Alan Jackson it's just, you know, your time comes and goes. You have to accept that as far as radio and what's hit and what's happening now. I had duck hunted with David Lee Murphy two weeks ago. You know, it's just, you know, you're, the, you're the only one who could have done that. But, you know, Kenny's got a, he's got a different thing and, and he really helped push that through the whole, thank goodness, because there's nobody I love more than David Lee Murphy. We sweat floors together for 30 bucks a night. Charlie Daniels gave me my first job when I got to town in 1980. That's how long I've known David Lee. So it's fun after sweeping floors, we can still laugh about that. What did you and DLM do sweeping floors? That must have been a hoot. Well, Charlie had a had a production company, Sound 70. Um, and every rock country concert, everything, all that was before Bridgestone here in Nashville. There wasn't a Coliseum. It was just the War Memorial Auditorium. So every show that came to town was there. And, um, and my good buddy, my roommate from high school, I was in military school, Jody Williams um, was married. Was to Tommy, yeah, was married to Tommy Crane, who played guitar for Charlie at the time. That's how the connection was. And Jody had me writing songs over there to no success. But still, he said, you know, we can pay you 30 bucks a night if you want to work security and sweep the floors down at War Memorial. I said, heck, yeah. Let's see how many nights is that? And rent's not but a hundred bucks. I got this. <laughs> well, I've already kept you a whole hour. You've dealt with my technological issues. You've dealt with fire trucks rolling by and 18 wheelers rolling by here at the coffee shop. That's how we need to do it, man. <laughs> I appreciate you, man, more than I could ever say. And I'll just say a couple things real quick. First, thank you for sharing the breakup details because you're right like as a fan from the outside perspective it's we don't know the inside perspective we don't know the personal emotions involved in aspiration or my god we've been together forever we've never been apart let's just take a minute and so i appreciate you sharing that very much and before i get you out of here i'm gonna go fanboy on you and I'm going to ask you if you pick up that guitar and play me something, would you? All right. 
see a ruin maybe out of tune probably get away with it all right well you inspired me let's do it I'm still hurting from the last time that you walked on this heart of mine. I can't find much to believe in. Let me down so many times. Heaven knows how much I love you. But I'm tired of holding on And you better kiss me Cause you're gonna miss me when I'm gone Not much chance we're gonna make it If I'm the only one who's trying Oh, I'm running out of reason. Oh, yeah, we're running out of time. Someday, girl, you're gonna wake up and wonder what went wrong. Oh, you better kiss me. Is she gonna miss me when I'm Amazing, brother. Thank you so much. You got it, pal. Enjoyed visiting. Thank you. Thank you. I uh, 
Time is our most precious resource, and I'm so grateful you shared yours with me. Thank you, Kicks. I'm good catching up, pal. You take care. Yes, sir. You All too. Right. Thank you, sir. You guys.